Welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. Wrapping each month in a value, as part of the Value of Land series, this episode sees Isabella Tree, author of Wilding, in conversation with journalist Catherine St. Germans about the daring wildlife experiment at Nepp Estate in West Sussex. Thank you very much for that lovely welcome. I wanted to start with uh, just a little sound and see if any of you can recognise what this sound is. If you know what it is and you've heard it in the last few years, you'll know how incredibly lucky you are because this is, of course, turtle doves. These are the two turtle doves that my true love gave to me at Christmas. They're the stuff of our cultural DNA. They're in Shakespeare, Chaucer. We kind of grew up with them. And at Christmas this year, I was thinking, looking at everyone singing these carols, you know, of what my true love gave to me, how very few of them would ever have heard a turtle dove, let alone seen one in the fresh. Because these birds are declining. Um, They've declined 97% since the 1960s. So when I was growing up, there were 125,000 pairs of turtle doves. So to me, it was just synonymous with summer, just like the sound of the cuckoo, another declining bird. But the turtle dove really is, I think, um, at least it's for us at NEP, it's come to symbolize much more than that. It's become our kind of canary in the mine because loads of species went extinct before the turtle dove. This bird is, according to the RSPB, about to go extinct from our shores in the next 10 to 15 years. But there are other creatures that we don't even measure, lichens and fungi and all sorts of beetles and and things that have already gone extinct within, within our shores. And of course, trailing in its wake are all these other birds like the cuckoo and nightingales and all these other creatures that are threatened with extinction. And the turtle dove really has become very sort of, it's bound, bound up with our story at NEP. I'll show you why. But the reason for its decline in the UK is complicated because it's an African migrant. Like so many of our other migrants, it comes over 3,000 miles from sub-Saharan Africa to get to Britain. And so, of course, there's changes in habitat happening in Africa. There are these little oases where it stops to drink on the way and the Sahara are, are disappearing. And then, of course, we've got increasingly, um, we've got weather events, big storms and things that are coming with global warming. So it's having to encounter more and more of these storms. And quite often a storm can just simply blow migrating birds off their route and shove them out to sea and you'll never, you'll never see them again. So they've got a lot more to contend with on journey. And then, of course, they've got to cross um, the Mediterranean and then they have to face the firing squads of Malta, of southern Spain, of even France, where they're still killed by the hundreds of thousands, even though there's a moratorium on them. Their numbers are declining in Europe, but they're nowhere near as steeply declining as Britain. So in, in some parts of, of Europe, turtle dove numbers are actually stable. 
Um, elsewhere, there's a sort of downward trajectory like this, but nowhere is there this cliff edge just drop that we've had in Britain. And the reason is this. It's the wholesale transformation of our land since the Second World War. We all know about Dig for Victory when um, every inch of the land was encouraged to be ploughed up for food, for providing us with food in that crisis of the World War, where all our um, communication systems were disconnected from the rest of the world, our, our trade routes, our provisions were, were completely cut off and we had to feed ourselves. But I think what we forget is that this was really only intended as a measure in a time of crisis. It wasn't intended to carry on in perpetuity. We weren't supposed to be ploughing and ploughing and taking off the land forever. In fact, there were a lot of agronomists at the time who, as soon as rationing was finished, urged the government to go back to our old system of rotational farming, where you allow the land to rest for the soils to, to recover and to get the, the goodness back into the soils. And they urged, do not go down this route of chemical dependency. If you start going down the route of artificial fertilizers, farmers will become divorced from the land and separated from the soil. They won't be as resilient and our soils will suffer because of it. And that will give us long-term problems. And that's what we're seeing now. So we, we've become used to this kind of, this ubiquitous scene of agriculture on every possible inch of land in Britain, even though it's a very unnatural and, and subsidy-driven system. Uh, but what I think is we forget is what, how dramatically that changed our landscape. So before the Second World War, our landscape would have looked so, so different. Since the Second World War, we've lost 75,000 miles of hedgerows. We've lost 97% of all our wildflower meadows. 97% of our wildflower meadows have gone. We've lost 90% of our he lowland heathland, 90% of wetlands. So we lost um, tens of thousands of, of um, ancient woodlands, ancient woods, since the Second World War. In fact, we lost more ancient woods in the 40 years after the war than we lost in the 400 years before the war. So these, this has changed our landscape beyond re recognition. Um, but we just need to remember that there was a baseline only 80, 90, 100 years ago where our landscape would have been much, very, much more varied and, and very, uh, much more biodiverse, much more sort of alive. Anyway, this is what NEP looked like. This is where our farm is. Uh, 20 years ago, this is exactly what it looked like. And this is where I live uh, with my daughter, Nancy, who's sitting here. Um, uh, it's, a, it's a Nash castle that was built for my husband's family about 220 odd years ago. It sits in the middle of a, an estate, a 3,500 acre estate. It's 40, 44 miles south of central London. And it's sort of surrounded by A roads and very busy kind of building happening all, the t all uh, everywhere at the moment. Um, and underneath the Gatwick stacking system. So we're a little tiny pocket, an oasis, in the middle of the very, very busy um, populated area of Britain. When we took over um, in the 1980s, early 1980s, from Charlie's grandparents, it was already a failing farm. Every inch of it had been ploughed up during Dig for Victory, even the Repton Park around the house and wildflower meadows, um, water meadows had all been ploughed up and they were still being being used. I mean, they were still under, under the plough. It was intensive arable and dairy, 
And when we inherited, it was already um, a loss-making enterprise. The farm was losing money hand over fist, even with subsidies. But with this sort of arrogance and I suppose, um, I suppose the optimism of youth, we thought that we could turn the farm around. Charlie had been to Sirencester Agricultural College and fully expected to be a farmer for the rest of his life. And he felt that the reason the farm had been failing was because his grandparents hadn't invested in infrastructure, which was true, and they didn't know all the latest technologies that were coming on stream. And Charlie was a child of, true child of the Green Revolution, so he felt he knew best or better. And so that's what we did. For 17 years, we did what every good farmer is supposed to do. We bought bigger machinery, um, we invested in infrastructure, we amalgamated dairies, we took tenant farms back in hand so we could make efficiencies. Uh, we experimented with different types of crops, um, new varieties that were coming online all the time. We sold the old red pole herd, a very old breed red pole herd of cattle, um, and bought instead modern modern breeds, Holsteins and, and Frisians, which are modern breeds specifically for milk. Um, we bought milk quota. We put in state-of-the-art dairies, amazing technological things. Um, and we made all the efficiencies we possibly could. We even diversified into ice cream and yogurt until the Darth Vader of ice cream um, sort of orbits, galaxies came into view, which was um, Hagen dazs which kind of blew us out of the water, along with Lowesley and, and lots of other amazing um, luxury ice cream brands in Britain. It wouldn't be allowed today because of the monopolies um, laws, but then Hagen dazs wiped the floor with us. But I don't think even ice cream could have helped us. We, of course, did all we could to, to increase our yields of our crops, and they did increase um, a little. Uh, but we were spraying and um, putting more nitrates on the land, more fertilizer, more pesticides, more herbicides, more fungicides, chucking this, these chemicals at the land in order to try and get our yields to improve. And we weren't bad farmers, actually. I mean, our yields improved. We had three of the best um, dairy herds in the country. They were consistently in the top 10 dairy herds in the country, so we weren't bad but we still weren't making money. In fact, if anything, the margin between us and, uh, uh, and a healthy bank balance was growing and growing all the time. And after 17 years, we were one and a half million in debt and we knew we couldn't go on. The reason was this. I don't know, um, I can't remember what, what, what soil um, we're, we're standing on now, but it, I don't know if any of you are familiar with low wheeled clay because it's absolute hell. Um, it is unfathomable porridge in winter, and in summer it just bakes as hard as concrete. I think the Inuit are supposed to have dozens and dozens of different words for different types of snow. Um, and in, in Sussex, when I was researching the book, I was really amused to find that we have over 35 different words for mud. That's how it governs our lives. So if you had a really wet winter, like not this last winter, but the one before, really wet, you just can't get machinery onto the land at all, heavy machinery. So that means that for six months of the year, you're unproductive. You can't even sow spring crops. So you really can't compete with um, farms on better soil, particularly in a global economy. You just can't do it. It took us 17 years to realize that. So after 17 years, um, uh, my husband, Charlie, made the really brave, I think, decision to stop farming. Um, 
it's really difficult to kind of uh, overemphasize the pressure from family and neighbors and friends to carry on farming because that's what everyone felt that we should be doing and that to stop, to simply say enough, was really letting the side down. Um, but he made that decision um, because I think he realized that we had to do something to work with the land rather than battling against it all the time. So in 1999, um, we made that de decision, uh, made the farm manager, who was a friend, redundant, and nine men lost their jobs. And we sold our three remarkable dairy herds and all our farm machinery. And we sold our milk quota and we cleared our debts. And I don't know if any of you have ever been in the unfortunate position like we were of being in a failing business. But if you're in a failing business, you are so blinkered by, by your, just your desperate straits and your, um, your desperate desire to keep, make things work and to carry on that you're just looking at the next week or the next month or the next year. And any glimmer of an upturn, you seize and you think, ah, oh, this is the way we're going to crack it. You, you never have time to stand back and have the headspace to, to think. And that's what happens when you actually decide to stop. Once we'd stopped farming, we were suddenly open to ideas. We could stand back and look objectively at our land and see what had gone wrong and possibly what we could do in the future. And that's when we met this amazing man on the right here with the gray hair, Franz Vera, who is a Dutch ecologist. And um, at the time in 2000, his book, Grazing Ecology and Forest History, had just been translated into English. If we hadn't stopped farming, this would have completely passed us by. But as I say, we were kind of on the lookout for, for possibilities. And somebody suggested that we go and meet him. And what he was saying was really exciting to us because he was saying, and his, his theories are still have churned up scientific thought and conservation in, in Britain and still are. And what he's saying, essentially, is that in all our imaginings of how temperate zone Europe would have looked before human impact. We've completely forgotten about all the free roaming animals that would have been here. We've forgotten about bison, we've forgotten about elk, we've forgotten about aurochs, the ancestor of the cow, we've forgotten about tarpan, the ancestor of the horse, we've forgotten about wild boar, we've forgotten about beavers by the million. There would have been millions of beavers in Britain. And we've forgotten about all these animals because we drove them to extinction, pretty much. Um, but they would have been out there in the landscape, driving habitat, disturbing the land, trampling, rootling, moving seeds across the landscape, moving minerals from one place to another. They would have been interacting with our vegetation, keeping a much more open landscape, a mosaic of habitats, than the kind of closed canopy forest we have in our heads. We have this kind of... Um, this myth, this kind of Grimm's fairy tale kind of myth that before man came along, um, temperate zone Europe was closed canopy forest, this mythical, dark, mysterious place. Um, and I think there's a sort of, there's deep Freudian overtones, I think, in this, but, you know, that man came along and with his axe, he sort of cut down the virgin forest and he sowed his seed in the virgin soil. And, you know, I think there's a quite a sort of, a lot of sort of, um, um, anthropocentric sort of myth-mongering going on in this kind of idea. And what France is saying is that actually, no, it wasn't. You, you wouldn't have had this ability of a 
of a squirrel to run from John O'Groats to Land's End without touching the ground. That's a kind of complete figment of our imaginations that actually what our landscape would have been would be much more open, much more like wood pasture, like somewhere like the New Forest, like you see today, driven by these free-roaming animals. And it would have been much, much more dynamic, much more open to sunlight. And that's what biodiversity thrives on. So what France is saying is that if you want to recover biodiversity in this time of cataclysmic loss, then the way you can do that is to release these free-roaming animals into the landscape, let them have free reign again, let them manage, and then miraculous things happen. It's kind of like um, giving a, pulling a glider up into the sky so it can fly again. That's how important these free-roaming herbivores are. And so we were really intrigued by that idea. The key thing Franz told us was that as human beings, we have to sit back and let the animals do the job for you. And that's very, very difficult for human beings to do. And we found that very, very difficult in the early days, coming from our, our micromanaging sort of farming heads. But anyway, we thought that we would try this experiment. And if we could release free-roaming animals onto our land, onto our 3,500 acres, and if we could improve biodiversity even just a tiny bit on our nature-depleted land, on our biological desert essentially after all that those years of farming then we could prove something that would have been worthwhile and so that's what we decided to do we spent a fantastic year or couple of years actually smashing up all the victorian drains that have been trying very ineffectually to get water off our land charlie had a fantastic time doing that um, we took up about 200 miles of um, fences and gate posts we just let the ditches still silt up so you can imagine already the, the, the burden that is to a farmer to keep those ditches completely clear all the time. And the, and the cost of maintenance of all those internal um, um, fences is huge. So it was just a, a relief just to let go. And already we were beginning to see interesting things happen because you just let the water sit on the land where it has always wanted to sit and suddenly amazing things happen. So you start seeing water invertebrates come and then water plants and then water birds. So even in those first few years and months, we knew that we were onto something exciting. And then finally, we managed, we, we, uh, then, we, then you know, you, you, we left over a period of about five or six years, we left our our arable fields just as they were after their last harvest. So barley, maize, whatever it was, we just, we just let it be after the last harvest. And then you get this explosion of vegetation. So you get thorny scrub punching through those arable fields. Um, things like dog rose, bramble, uh, blackthorn, hawthorn, groves of willow. And once you've had that initial vegetation pulse, once you know that it's strong enough to kind of resist um, and it's, it's strong enough to look after itself, then you can let in your free-roaming animals. And that's when we managed finally to get funding to ring-fence the whole area, the 3,500 acres, so we could release some of these herbivores. So we've lost uh, many of our old species. We've lost the aurochs and the tarpan. Bison are coming back in, in um, uh, Europe and being used in rewilding projects over there. But we jolly nearly lost the bison too. We lost about four or five subspecies of bison recently as well. Um, and beaver, we hope, are coming back to Britain. But meanwhile, we really just have to work with the tools that we have at our disposal. And so in the absence of the aurochs, we can use... a 
uh, its descendant, we can use a cow. And in the absence of tarpan, we can use, again, its descendant, the horse. And essentially, they're doing the same thing. They have the same um, gut flora, the same preferences of what they eat, the same disturbances on the land. And so essentially, they're behaving like their ancestors would have behaved. So this is our, or, this is our aurochs. It's an old English longhorn. There's no supplementary feeding, no buildings for it to shelter in. And as you can see, cows don't just eat grass. They are browsers, a really important um, impact on vegetation. And they, they self-medicate too. They'll eat herbs and things, particularly sallow, this, which is where the aspirin comes from. So they'll take that for some rheumatic kind of pains and also to get rid of worm burden. And as I mentioned before, they're, they're this hugely important vector because they're eating um, flora in one place and then they're digesting, the, the seeds are traveling through their gut and then they're dunging them out in another in a perfect kind of pile of compost ready to take off again. They can carry 230 different seed species in their gut, their hooves and their fur. So they're a hugely important um, influence on, on how plants travel around the landscape. And of course, it's not just plants that are traveling with them, it's the nutrients and the minerals too. A, 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 a process we've completely forgotten about in our modern, very static farming. And this is our tarpan, an Exmoor pony. Um, as you can see, it eats completely different things to the, to the cows. Again, that's a different mouthpiece, doing different things, different ways of disturbing. And they, they're doing these incredible uh, research at the moment in um, Kenya, Princeton University are doing, between the relationship of equines and bovines. It's so interesting because we don't often have cows and horses grazing together. We sort of assume that, the, you know, if you're trying to, to fatten up your cows, you don't want to have horses in there because they'll compete for the same resource. But what they've found in Kenya is if you have, say, 100 cows in a given area and you have them feeding alongside equines, be they zebra or um, donkeys or ponies, those cows will put on 60% more weight. It's completely counterintuitive, like so much of rewilding. But what's happening is that the horses are eating all the rough stuff, the thistles, the, the really thatchy grasses that the cows simply can't stomach. And that is enabling the sweeter grasses to come up, which the cows then benefit from. So I have this, this lovely sort of um, vision in my head of days gone by when we would have had herds of tarpan moving through the landscape and in their wake you would have had the aurochs going behind them benefiting from the habitat that the tarpan has created. And then we've got three different types of deer. We've got roe deer which were already present in small numbers and they're still quite small actually. Um, and then we introduced fallow and red deer. So again different mouthpieces in the landscape, different ways of disturbing the, the vegetation and the soil and particularly in the rut these animals um, will, you know, the red deer will kind of chuck up huge tufts of, of turf with their antlers, they'll, they'll um, break branches, they'll even debark trees in the winter, they'll, they'll gnaw the, the bark around the trees and they'll, they'll fell, eventually those trees will fall. So they're a very opener of, of a landscape. And the same with the fallow, they create these incredible leks, these sort of arenas where they, where they lek during the um, uh, mating season in the autumn and they're sort of spraying the ground with urine and pheromones and rubbing trees with their scent glands on their faces. And just that little rubbing of 
bark off a tree is opening up a little bit of a habitat for, for insects. So everything these animals do out there has a knock-on, a domino effect for biodiversity. And then we've got my favourite, the Tamworth pig. Um, you can see her here turfing up the soil. What's amazing is when you release these animals into a landscape, de-domesticated animals, how alive they become, how expressive. And as farmers, we used to look at um, the cows with their heads down in a green field, really boring, doing nothing but sort of eating grass. But it's not, it's not the animal that's boring, it's the situation we're putting them in that's boring. It's when you release pigs into a landscape like this that you see how ingenious they are. And who would have thought that they could behave like hippos? Um, we've timed them. They can actually hold their breath underwater for 120 seconds. Um, they love being in water. And what they found at the bottom of, of the lakes, how they ever knew they were there, is swan mussels. Um, so these big, giant freshwater swan mussels, which they will... will, they will a truffle for underwater and then they'll bring them to the bank and open them with their with their trotters and take out the flesh from inside. They're completely ingenious and very endearing. You can watch them forever. But um, what they're doing obviously is rootling as well and that's a hugely important impact on the land. So you can imagine that that grass, if you've had permanent pasture for a very long time and you've got really thick thatchy sward, it's very difficult for any seeds to come in and penetrate that. But as soon as you've got that open, damp, bare soil, seeds can come in. And very, very quickly, you'll get colonization. Um, you'll see how complex, look, I mean, how quickly it happens. We can see that Charlie hasn't even moved. Um, but we've got all that, suddenly all that kind of complexity going on in that turfed up area. And those clods of earth become sort of suddenly, they stimulate ants to create anthills. So that gives them a kickstart to create anthills. And at NEP now we've got anthills that are this high, um, thanks largely to the pig rootling that has started them off. And you can imagine that the soil in those, in those um, anthills is completely different to the clay underneath because it's been through the whole system of, of kind of the ant colony. And so you've got lighter, more complex soils on top growing out of this heavy clay already because of the insect life. And so some of the species that have come back, these tiny little native wildflowers, I'm training myself not to say weeds, but these beautiful little native wildflowers, and plant life has a lot to say about how these, these little, little flowers are declining in our landscape, because we have no zero tolerance for them in our arable landscape, and we have zero tolerance pretty much for them in our gardens and on our, on our roadside verges. And it's not surprising that these native plants on which so many of our native species depend are responsible for the, the collapse, the continuing collapse of our, of our biodiversity. But what's coming back at net, thanks to the rootling of the pigs, is little uh, flowers like bird's foot trefoil, uh, scarlet pimpernel, um, and we've got things like black medic, um, vetches and vetchlings. We've got fumitry come back at NEP. And all these have tiny little seeds which are really protein rich on which lots of birds depend, including the turtle dove. So only a few years into the project, we heard our first turtle dove. And for us, that was astonishing because we hadn't had a, a record of a turtle dove on NEP ever, not since records began. And suddenly we started hearing them. And last year we had 19 singing males. 
So you only really hear the male. The male is the only one that sings. And because they're so shy, presumably because there's so few of them left, I think in Sussex there's, they, they reckon there's only about 200 pairs left, if that. Um, they're so shy that you only really can count them by hearing that male, that, that lovely tour-tour. But we know that at NEP they've been um, breeding because we've even managed to ring a couple of fledglings. And so there could quite easily be 30 turtle doves at NEP last year. And we've already got them back. They're just coming back now. They're, they've just arrived from their migration. But we haven't been able to count them this year yet. But we could have had as many as 30 turtle doves last year. And according to Matthew Oates, who is the nature specialist at the National Trust, he thinks we have more turtle doves on NEP, on our 3,500 acres, than the National Trust does on 250,000 hectares. So it's astonishing what's happened. It's completely bucked the trend, and it's completely astonished us. We, we just weren't expecting it at all. But this is kind of what explains it. I mean, this is what our land would have looked like 20 years ago. And you can imagine no self-respecting turtle dove is going to think you know, twice about going down there and checking it out. In fact, you can't imagine many birds wanting to land in that habitat. But this is what happens when you, when, as we begin to rewild and as the land kind of heals itself and becomes much more complex. You can easily see, you know, if you're thinking like a turtle dove, that actually that's, that might be promising. And this is what it looks like from the ground or from that withered bough that Shakespeare talks, uh, talks about the turtle dove sitting on and making his lament. And you can see from, the, from that aspect, it's much, much more complex. And all these species in there um, are things like blackthorn, hawthorn, dog rose, bramble, things that we have, again, zero tolerance for in our landscape today. Most people look at this and call it wasteland. And we have the machines now just to take it out like that. We just don't even think about it. But it's one of the most biodiverse habitats there is. And in times past, in medieval times particularly, we would have had this kind of habitat all over Britain. In fact, if we go down, go back to the names, the, the place names, the field names at NEP, lots of our fields are called things like Benton's Gorse and Brummer's Corner and Furzefield, which means a, another word for gorse, and Thornhill, because these species would have had uses. They, we could have made gunpowder from them, medicines, um, tool handles, brooms, thatch. I mean, everything we needed could have come from this habitat. But now, because in the age of plastics, we don't need this kind of stuff anymore, um, we just regard it as completely worthless. I have a sort of pipe dream that maybe now that plastics is hopefully coming to an end, we might actually begin to get tool handles and things like that from this kind of habitat once again. But anyway, this is where the turtle dove is making her nest. So deep inside that thorny scrub, she's got um, protection from predation. She's also got the lovely native wildflower seeds that are coming up um, that the pigs have facilitated. Um, and also she's got um, uh, standing water that is, that is of uh, high quality. The problem we have out there, again, is that a lot of birds and insects depend on really pure water. And it's very, very difficult to find standing water in our landscape that isn't polluted by nitrates or road runoff or things like that. So we've got clean water on net that the turtle doves are enjoying. But it's not just turtle doves that have found us. Um, we've got all five species of UK owl. Um, that, um, including the little owl, um, which is totally adorable, but this, the little owl has gone bananas because we now have so many dung beetles at NEP. Um, 
you can imagine we just don't we don't because we're completely organic we don't have we're not feeding our cattle avermectins or antibiotics which are they routine, routinely fed in intensive systems all our dung is organic and that has just meant that our dung beetles have completely taken off um, they've all found us somehow um, Charlie who is um, kind of a bit of a dung beetle fetishist if I can call him that um, but he does have a thing about dung beetles and a couple of years ago he, I couldn't work out what he was doing. He was following the cattle around with his, with his phone. And that wasn't unusual. But what was unusual is every time um, one of them did a cow pat, he'd drop to his face next to the cow pat and do something with his phone. And I couldn't work out what he was doing, but he was timing how long it would take dung beetles to find that cow pat. And the record was um, a minute and a half. So they're out there all the time, just waiting for this opportunity. Um, and these dung beetles will obviously a, a, another keystone species because they're pulling down the dung into the soil, pulling all those nutrients and minerals back into the soil to bring soils back to life again. That summer was quite funny, actually. But then he did get a bit over the top when he started bringing um, dung, pats of dung into the kitchen to sort of rummage around in. And um, he was and putting them in test tubes and all that kind of thing. Um, and putting things in the freezer, things I would find in the freezer. But what, what, he was, what he finally did, triumphantly, he announced that at the end of that summer he had found two, 23 different species of dung beetle in a single cow pat, which is astonishing, really. Um, and one of them, the violet door beetle, has never been seen, hasn't been seen in Sussex for 50 years. So it's amazing, given a chance, how these things find you again. Now, where they're lurking and hiding out, we just don't know. But bring the habitat back and they, and they just rock it. And we've got 13 out of the UK's 19 species of bat, including this one, Beckstein's bat, which is so rare that very little is known about it. It's rare even in, in Europe, but it's an amazing little bat and it, it's now flying around NEP. And all these other species have found us. So we've got ravens, we've got uh, woodcock, we've got snipe, uh, we've got peregrine falcons nesting in a tree, which is almost unheard of. Um, we've got lesser spotted woodpeckers, um, we've got uh, tree creep creepers and flycatchers, we've got uh, one of the biggest breeding hotspots for, for nightingales as well. Again, again they, they benefit from that thorny scrub. Um, we've got cuckoos, we tagged three cuckoos last year. And it's, again, it's one of the last places you can hear cuckoos. They've completely disappeared from that, that sort of summer surround sound. Um, but we tagged three cuckoos um, and we called them Nep and Raymond after Charlie's father and Lambert after my father. And Nep and Lambert are back at Nep. And Raymond looks like he's going to stay in France, but he took a very long time to cross the Sahara. And now it looks like he doesn't want to cross the channel either. But he's still alive and um, it's amazing. So they've all done over 3,000 miles um, this year and they'll do another 3,000 going back to sub-Saharan Africa. Um, but they're, again, they're thriving at Nep. And we're the biggest, um, we have the biggest population of, of purple emperor butterflies. So our second largest, and I think the most dramatic butterfly. I'd never heard of them until they sort of descended on NEP. But again, um, this is something that we think that pigs are responsible for because they're breeding on sallow, on a, this hybridized willow. And sallow can only occur, it, it's, its seed is only viable for two months, two, sorry, two weeks of the year. Round about now, actually, you see it flying as fluff. In the, in the wind, but it has to find open, bare soil in which to germinate. And what's providing that for them at NEP? It's the pig. And so the pig, in a way, is breeding purple emperor butterflies. And we'd never have known that kind of life cycle 
um, if we hadn't been just sitting back and just letting things happen. So that's been one of our, our biggest excitements. Um, and last year we broke the record, our own record, for about the third or fourth year running, and we're hoping to do the same again this year. So NEP now looks very, very different to 20 years ago. Um, we got a lot of flack in the early days because um, people found what we were doing very irresponsible or sometimes offensive. One of the criticisms is that we're not producing as much food as we did before, which is true. But we still are producing food. We produce 75 tonnes of organic, premium, free-roaming, um, uh, pasture-fed, self-medicating meat. I think that's beef and pork and venison. And I think that's the most ethical meat you can buy. And we all need to be uh, not buying um, grain-fed meat and from industrialised uh, uh, meat production. I, to, to me, it seems unethical on every level, and it's totally unsustainable. So we need to be eating less meat, but when we do, it needs to be meat that's coming from conservation projects or from sustainable um, agriculture. And that brings in about 120,000 a year. But that is almost entirely profit, because there's no inputs, hardly any inputs at all. And there's no veterinary, for hardly any veterinary fees. And, um, and so almost all of that is profit. We couldn't have imagined profits like this under the old regime of farming. We never made a profit. So that is a real turnaround for us. But we're also producing other goods, public goods they're now called, um, or ecosystem services for the public. So things that we desperately, desperately need. Things like flood mitigation. We know that downstream from us, um, roads and buildings and bridges that, and, uh, that permanently, that always used to, to flood in moments of, of heavy rain, now don't because our soil is so restored and we've got so much sort of healthy vegetation on it that we're actually holding back the water and releasing it much more slowly. So if you think of that in terms of economics, we're saving the public purse the costs of hard revetments downstream to prevent floods, which are going to happen with, well, big rains are going to happen more and more often. And so that is, is, a, is, a, is a saving to the public purse. If you can imagine rewilding like this going on in, in catchments and upper, upper river catchment areas. We're also purifying, purifying the water. I talked about that earlier. We're also purifying the air. And we know how... Um, how expensive it is, to put it bluntly, um, for the NHS, the amount of, 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 of uh, illnesses we're getting from polluted air in our cities. And actually Britain, um, the UK, has been fined for the third time running for not living up to its promises to cut pollution um, from, by, uh, um, uh, in the EU agreements. So having these lungs around our cities could actually be hugely beneficial to public health and also the public purse. Um, we're also sequestering carbon, hugely important this uh, as we face trying to mitigate against climate change. But this has huge potential for sucking up carbon into the soil and into that vegetation and, and helping us to, to meet our commitments. And also we're restoring the soil. So just a couple of years ago the UN came out with this devastating report saying that we only have 60 harvests left in the UK, uh, sorry, globally before we have no topsoil in which to grow anything. So we have to look at ways in which we can restore our soil. And we know in 20 years at NEP, we have done that. We've doubled the, the, uh, the um, carbon inside the, in, within the soil. We've tripled the soil biota and we've tripled the mycorrhizal fungi, those lovely networks of, of roots and filaments underneath the soil. So we know it can be done very, very quickly. And I think there's a very interesting idea about how we could 
get rewilding working in tandem with farming by using it much like we used to have the, the rotational systems in farming. You could do the same with rewilding and, and, and agriculture. You needn't rewild, rewild in perpetuity. What you could do is just rewild for a generation, say. So in places like the Fens, where we've only got 15 years of agriculture left because the, the topsoil is re reducing so rapidly, you could rewild for a generation, so for 20, 25, 30 years, and as um, and after that, you can just send in those amazing huge toppers, those machines that the Forestry Commission have, and send the whole whole scrub back into a workable tilth and start farming regeneratively again. But meanwhile, around you, other huge areas or significant areas have, are coming up with rewilding, so they're scrubbing up. So your nightingales, your turtle doves, your purple emperors have a space to move into. So you can do this rotational system of rewilding agriculture, rewilding agriculture, um, to regenerate your soils and, and get them back into good heart. But I think from Charlie and my point of view, really, what, what has been astonishing in this sort of journey um, into rewilding from being our kind of control freaky farmers that we were, is what it does to you um, psychologically. So it's this connection you get with wildlife, with the feeling of life around you once again. Um, E.O. Wilson, that, the wonderful American biologist, calls it biophilia. That's the sort of innate desire in all of us to connect with life, with living things. And if you think about it, we've only been um, urban for a blip in our evolution. So it's not a surprise that we damage ourselves physically and mentally when we disconnect entirely from nature. So it's really that amazing sort of that, that feeling that all is right with the world, that sort of that, that, that leap of joy you get when you hear a turtle dove tour touring in the thickets. That's what it feels to me that rewilding brings. But if there are all these amazing benefits to be had from rewilding, then why aren't we doing more of it? Um, it's, a, it's such an interesting question. And we have had a lot of interest. Um, Charlie likes to say that we had a million acres walk through the door last year. And we're looking like we'll have another million acres walking through the door this year. And that's farmers and landowners who have heard about what we're doing and they've come to see it and con seriously considering doing something like this on their own land. So it's incredibly exciting. But it's a very different thing. It's one thing to, to come to NEP and say, I love what you're doing. Um, and it's another to go away to your own land and start doing it there. And I think part of the problem is that we have this sort of, this this inbuilt nostalgia, this kind of conditioning, cultural conditioning that we have in our heads of what our landscape should look like. That controlled patchwork of fields. If you're lucky enough to have hedgerows, then they're maintained and cut within an inch of their lives. Um, we've got linear lines everywhere, so there's no messy margins. Um, our roadside verges are like lawns. We have canalised rivers. We have uh, if we have ancient woodland, it's usually surrounded by monocrops of some description. And we, we, we find that, that look, that patchwork controlled, managed look, somehow consoling or reassuring. We feel that we're doing our job and that things are in their place. And I think if we are going to embrace rewilding and all the benefits it can bring us, we have to learn to let go of that. We've got to let, let go of our sort of corseted 
Victorian obsession with tidying up. We've got to get messy again. And we've got to learn to embrace kind of the ebb and flow, the boom and bust cycles of nature. We've got to learn to, to want free-roaming animals in our landscape that might be unpredictable and do things that we never could have expected. And that's a big leap, I think, of, of letting go. So really, for me, I think, rewilding is as much about recognizing the potential of it and how it works, but it is really about rewilding ourselves. Thank you. Thank you so much, Isabella. That was fantastic. Incredible overview of your brave and daring project. And before we start, I'd just like to um, mention that Isabella today won the Richard Jeffries Prize for Nature Writing for her book, Wilding. So, <laughs> fabulous um, award and richly, richly deserved. So I wanted to start off by asking you, given all that we've heard and that we all know that we're at this point of cataclysmic time in our um, planet, um, why do you think that re rewilding has been so controversial? When we started off 20 years ago, it was very controversial because I think it was associated with predators, with apex predators. So people heard the word rewilding, they thought wolves and lynx and bears. And I think that's, that's largely because it, it, the, the, the word was coined in America where they have huge open spaces and untouched, you know, their national parks have nobody in them, mm -hmm. um, very different to our national parks. Um, and the thought of having wolves and bears in our national parks, I think, you know, froze people with terror. Um, and there was that man in Scotland, wasn't there, who, who released wolves? Paul Lister, yeah. yeah. I yeah. think that was the kind of the moment yes, where that the real moment. fear... Exactly. And I think we mustn't lose sight of the fact that, it, I mean, of, of the, the potential and maybe one day when we have enough connected land again, when we have enough habitat back, um, we could, or our grandchildren or great-grandchildren, could make a decision about whether we could reintroduce wolves again. I don't think we should write it off as being impossible. We could quite easily have lynx, um, but they're a stealth predator and they could be somewhere in forests like Kielder and they would eat our roe deer, and the roe deer is such a problem. We've got millions of roe deer, and they're, they're destroying habitat. So they would be a very good solution. But I think it was only really when Franz Vera came on the scene that, um, in Europe anyway, we started thinking about herbivores and how they are a keystone species, and that actually you can do something, if not everything, by, by using those animals. Um, when did you first come across the word rewilding? I mean, I, I, for this evening, I looked up at um, the, the use of the word, and in fact, there was a graph that I came across. I don't know if any of you can really actually see it, but basically, it starts at 1800, and it goes it's flat lines, and then the word comes into use in about 200, 2007. I'm not sure of the exact date, um, but it was a word that was coined relatively recently, wasn't it? Can you talk a little bit about that and when you first came across the term? Um, I think it was so something like 2003, actually, in, in America, again, um, where it was associated with this phrase, cause, um, uh, cause corridors and carnivores. And, uh, and again, you know, they, 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 it's a great phrase, that, and we definitely need core areas where we have nature and corridors to connect them together, and wonderful if you can have apex predators. But 
what wasn't mentioned was the, was the, the drivers of the system, which are the herbivores. And so um, as in Europe now, um, there's huge rewilding projects in Europe, very, very exciting. And my husband actually is in Romania at the moment where they're working on um, securing um, a whole um, a spur of the Carpathian Mountains and it's going to become the Yellowstone of Europe. And that's got bears and wolves and lynx. Um, but they're going to be reintroducing bison there and um, supporting, uh, reintroducing, they've got a few beavers but they'll have more beavers and they're going to have another, um, they're going to have equines and bovines of some description. And so really it's Europe that has changed the meaning of the word rewilding over the last few years into this idea of having free roaming animals in the landscape to drive the system and to, to keep it dynamic and open and, and shifting a sort of kaleidoscope of, of habitats. And with, with Franz Vera's groundbreaking um, report, was it a report, um, book? It's a book, yeah, book yeah, yeah. That really kind of nailed that for you. Mm, mm. Um, and did you consider bison? We'd love to have bison. Um, uh, we uh, we would st we st we'd still work on the idea of having bison in Britain. Um, they're, they're astonishing creatures. We put that in our original proposal to, to DEFRA. Um, uh, there were beavers, bison and wild boar, and we haven't got any of them yet, but we're still working on it. Um, and the bison, um, Europe, in European projects, they're showing that bison, again, are a keystone species. There's a tiny little project in, in the Netherlands, that's only 350 hectares, where they've introduced um, about a dozen bison and about a dozen um, heck ponies. And this is in a really sa uh, sensitive sand dune ecosystem that was just where biodiversity was going like that and, and sycamore and birch were just marching in and turning, uh, turning into a very boring, static um, place. And the bison have gone in, they've got rid of the trees, ringbark most of the trees, and now it's this incredible biodiversity is just going like that. It's new species every year coming back. And the sand dunes are moving again because the bison rub into the, in the sand dunes and and make nests for themselves and get rid of kind of parasites in the sand. And that's had this incredible effect that nobody could have imagined. So they're definitely a keystone species and I think they would do fantastically well on our heathland, where heathland is getting encroached by, um, by birch and, and, and sort of tree cover. Um, bison would be perfect to, to, to sort of manage a dynamic heathland system. And what was it that stopped you um bringing bison onto your land was it was it well you need a license and um I, and that hasn't even you know no Not one's even. ever kind of broached the subject of having free roaming bison in britain yet i mean we're, we're already still struggling with the beaver um uh so um let's hope one day we can um interestingly you know there's a sort of again another myth that that bison are really really aggressive but they only really don't like dogs because they see them as wolves and so in this little three, 350 hectare nature reserve, which is just outside Harlem, I mean, you can bicycle to it from the airport, actually, from Amsterdam Airport. And you can go straight in there and walk through, you know, on the footpaths, walk through bison territory. And there's no problem whatsoever, but not with dogs. But having seen that, having said that, there is another reserve where they have um, accustomed the bison to dog walkers. And so even there, you know, the bison click that, you know, if there's a dog on a lead with a person, it's not a wolf. So it's perfectly doable. You know, we just panic yeah. at the thought. And in a nation of dog walkers and dog lovers, 
such as ours, it seems that actually the dog walkers and dogs potentially are kind of one of the kind of barriers in the rewilding progress, ironically. I think, I think they can be. I think, again, we have to learn to live with, with free-roaming animals again, and that's just a question, really, of, of education. And if we want to have <coughs> lapwing back, lapwing mm. in our skies again, mm -hmm. then, you know, we have to be responsible with our dogs and keep them under control and so that they're not chasing them off their nests. So, you know, uh, I think we, we all have a responsibility, and I'm a dog owner and a dog walker, and, you know, I've, I've definitely been more responsible since I've realised the impact <coughs> that dogs can have on ground nesting birds, yeah. I think one of the phrases that um, I found particularly profound and beautiful in, in, in your book is um, the way you, that you describe it as you let nature reveal herself. Um, but sometimes that wasn't that easy, that sometimes that could, have been, that could be a, a painful process which also involved you using the other phrase that you use, refer to quite a few times, sitting on your hands. Um, and it's a phrase that seems to be at the heart of, of, of the book and of, of what you did. What was the, one of the, maybe you could say to us, what was one of the moments where you felt you had to most, most kind of acutely take your hands off the steering wheels and sit on your hands and... Um, to begin with, you get these pioneer species that come in. And one of the pioneer species is creeping thistle. And, uh, it, it, you know, gardeners will know it. It's a nightmare because you can pull it up and leave a tiny, tiny <coughs> fragment and it will still mm. come up. Um, you just can't get rid of it. And we had, I mean, I think, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of acres were covered in creeping thistle. And some of the park as well, the Repton Park. So it was really conspicuous. And... We had vowed that we weren't going to touch anything. But this got, you know, as year passed and year passed, we just thought, this is just, you know, and we were worried. People were sending us letters about it and being outraged and saying it was a shame and we were a disgrace. And we thought we actually might lose our funding for the project because we were getting so many complaints. And Charlie was, he said, I'll give it one more year and I'll go out with the glyphosate and the toppers and we'll get rid of it. And... Um, Luckily, that summer, we were suddenly woken. We woke up, and it was a Sunday morning. I remember it was sunny, and we were watching these butterflies just flying past the window like tracer. And they were um, painted lady butterflies, and it was 2008, I think, that was a, a boom year for, for painted lady butterflies, and they, they migrate from Morocco. And there had been an explosion of these um, butterflies in Morocco, obviously the right plants or something, and they'd flown over to Britain in their millions. And we, were, we, we followed them to find out where they were going. And they were landing on the creeping thistle because that is their food plant for their caterpillars. And so that year, the caterpillars of the painted lady um, butterflies just broke out all over the creeping thistle, ate all the leaves, you know, pupated, moved on, flew off, and left just these stalks, these sorry-looking kind of threads in the, in the ground. And next year, the creeping thistle disappeared. Amazing. So it just, it made, it gave us courage because we felt that sooner or later, nature doesn't like a monoculture. Mm -hmm. Sooner or later, mm -hmm. something will come in to wipe it out. Mm -hmm. And you'll get ragwort one year, you'll get creeping thistle the next, you'll get docks, you'll get this and, and but something comes sooner or later to eat it and, and balance it and get rid of it. And that's what the boom and bust cycles that give you the miracles of yeah. standing there in yeah. the middle of tens of thousands of butterflies. It was the most amazing experience. How and we wouldn't have seen it if we got the glyphosate out. Yeah. How amazing. Um, 
you mentioned ragwort then, and I think it's something that um, I know has been another kind of like flashpoint in your mm. whole project. And we could spend the next half an hour talking about ragwort probably, and, which would be. <laughs> um, but um, tell tell me, and, and I, I I noticed online as well that you you compiled a report on it on the on the estate, and you've obviously had a lot of flack with it. Where are you at, at, that, at the moment in that kind of argument with your neighbours and? How, how are the, how's the how's the, the land lying, so to speak? Well, it's simmered down a lot. We we again, ragwork was something that almost derailed the project because we mm. were getting your sincerely disgusted letters from mm. neighbours written to the MP and and Defra and everyone actually, mm. and we were really worried that it, you know our, it's a native plant and we you know our, our, the whole rewilding project was going to be you know jeopardised by a native plant. It seemed mm. extraordinary. Um, but basically, and I explain it in my book, I thought I could get away with a paragraph in the book, but I wrote a whole chapter about it. But, um, and actually, one, one of the most impassioned, and, and I, I think in many ways lyrical chapters. <laughs> in praise of ragwort. One, <laughs> one of my aims before I die is to get um, ragwort on the co cover of Country Life. <laughs> um, I tried once, so I'm going to give them a break for a bit, but definitely it needs to be on there and celebrated. Um, I think... Um, now it's sort of simmered down because I think at the beginning, it's it's all bad science basically. The what, the reason that that we have such a, 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 a sort of hatred of ragwort, um, we're so biased and prejudiced against it. Daffodils, wild daffodils, are as poisonous as ragwort, and um, again, um, horses, cattle won't eat it if it's alive because they know not to touch it. They've co-evolved with these plants, so they they recognise it and know it. It's only dangerous when it's cut in hay, when they can't recognise it. So you definitely mm. have to get rid of ragwort in hay meadows. But otherwise, it is a native plant that sustains dozens and dozens of en endemic insects. It's some insects that will only live on ragwort and nothing else. Um, but hundreds of other species. And it's late flowering and it's beautiful at night. It's, it's so fluorescent that moths, night flying moths, find it at night. So it's hugely important to, to ecology, to, to species. Um, and I think um, in the early days, because of, uh, you know, like the creeping thistle, it was so conspicuous as a pioneer. Mm. That's why we got so much flack. And also I think our neighbours were feeling uneasy because they were seeing this landscape transform in quite a scary way. I completely get that. But now I think now that we've had so many um, positives and these huge successes in terms of, biodiversity and really rare species I think that you know that the, the, the understanding is is there and none of our horses have dropped dead none of our you know cattle have dropped dead so I think people are beginning to understand of course they can live alongside this plant um, mm -hmm. we don't have to eradicate it wherever it is mm -hmm. talk a little bit about um, the um, other landowners who've come to see you and who um, have seen your successes and who've seen also the, the kind of difficulties you've overcome. Um, are, are you aware of other projects in the UK that may be about to, to happen or um, of other landowners who are considering it? Yes, I mean, I can't, I can't divulge okay. who, <laughs> um, but there are certainly some very, very exciting projects out there. It'd be unfair of me to... to to say anything at this stage because they are, you know, in the early stages of planning and everything else, and I don't know if they've gone public mm -hmm. um, yet. Um, but um, there are lots of very exciting projects out there. 
there's one project which is going to be which is going to be sort of managed managed or sort of um, steered by Rewilding Britain, um, which is a wonderful organisation that was um, my husband was chair of and is now um, a board member of, but in, he was chair of it for the first four years. Um, and that is this incredible project. It's going to be the first really big landscape scale rewilding project. It's called Summit to Sea, and it's in Wales. And it's from the top of Pimliman Mountain to the benthic layer of Cardigan Bay. So it's going to be huge. And it's just received a million and a half, I think, of funding from the Endangered Landscapes Programme. And that is really exciting because that is involving all sorts of stakeholders. So small farmers, sheep farmers that are going bust, um, uh, forestry commission land, uh, land owned by the Welsh government, by the Crown, um, you name it. It's kind of got everybody in there in the mix. And they together are going to be creating this incredible project and, and restoring you know, a huge area of Welsh landscape. Yeah, yeah. One of the um, uh, sections of the book that I, I was sort of intrigued by that um, you touched upon was um, when you were discussing at the beginning the dig to victory and the attitude of the Second World War and of, of um, uh, how that then helped to shape post-war farming. Um, but you also talked about the land girls and that there were 80,000 land girls, um, female volunteers labouring on the land under the command of your husband Charlie's great-grandmother, mm. Trudy Denman, who was a pioneering feminist. I'd love to know more about her. Did you come across her? Or no, 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 no. Much? I mean, you know, yeah, his, his, his grandmother, um, who was her daughter, died um, in 87. Um, so I certainly didn't come across Trudy. But she was amazing, and she pioneered um, family planning in this country too. Um, so she felt really strongly. She was a really extraordinary extraordinary feminist actually um, in her diaries there that you know she would visit people on the on the you know tenant farms and we just forget you know that before the first world war there were people I mean the poverty of you know agricultural communities and the death rate of you know children and babies and you know ten people in a room living in a room and the, in, in her diary she describes all this and she felt so strongly that women should have control of their bodies and that they should have as many children as they felt they could support and no more. And, um, and I, you know, that, that was amazing in sort of 1910. Yeah. Um, and she uh, equally was, um, you know, felt that when the Dig for Victory, you know, the call for Dig for Victory came, that women could do the jobs that, that they were often thought couldn't. So they should be driving tractors, which was kind of unheard of. And she, there were, you know, she would mount um, um, headlights on tractors so that these girls could go out there and they could, they could, they could plow at night, you know, which was, it was amazing. So she, she, was, she was quite something, yeah. yeah. I love the sound of her. Mm. Um, I think we're, we ought to actually turn to questions from the audience now mm. because um, our time is limited before everyone goes to have their dinner. Thank you very much. Uh, inspiring talk and uh, great to hear of the, uh, the improvement. One of the things over the last 30 years that I, I've seen is the growth in the knowledge and awareness of horticulture. 30 years ago, kids would not be interested in gardening. 
uh, RHS has done great work there. <clears throat> to what degree are you able to inform and inspire the younger generation about what you've done? Well, it's, it's, um, it, it's, you know, there's so, so much kind of work to be done, isn't there? Um, we actually have, an, a, 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 we have a camps, we have an ecotourism business now, again, which is, which is another important income stream for us that, that helps sustain the whole estate. Um, and so we have glamping and camping and safaris, um, kind of based on a sort of like an African model. So you can go out in open-sided vehicles. So yeah, we um, we do that, but we ha I have actually put a, a, a twelve-plus restriction on it, um, and partly that's because of insurance. Because in our campsite we have um, open fire pits and we have an unfenced pond, and it's impossible. Well, would it would ha we'd have to do a lot to make it um, safe for toddlers, but also because little children have you know very different you know sort of focus and it's difficult to hold their attention on a safari. Um, so we have that 12 plus um, uh, age restriction. Um, but we do lots of bespoke safaris. So when we do bespoke safaris for schools or for just, you know, someone wants to take their children out in a, you know, on a, uh, an adventure, we have a completely different setup. So we do, we get them messy and dirty. So it's kind of, you know, like ferreting around in the, in the dung, dung patch to find dung beetles, it's pond dipping, it's, you know, it's just getting dead, not being frightened of nature anymore. I think what we'd love to do, we tried in the early days to get school trips to NEP, but the, the school, you know, schools are so hard pressed to find the time and the energy and have the money often to organise field trips that we just, we were really disappointed we weren't getting schools coming to us. So one of our plans, if we can do this, and we, one of our safari guides wants to take this on, who used to be a teacher, um, is to try and get a field trip built into the curriculum. So if we could do it in biology or even geography, and actually get help, and that would actually help teachers to tick a box on, in their <coughs> curriculum. And then we could convert, say, a barn, where they can be out in the field and bring things back and look at them under a microscope. And, and just feel, get the classroom back into the field again. So that's really where I think we're going with trying to get young people engaged in, in nature again. Um, I'm just interested um, in when you first started the re rewilding project, did you just let nature take its course or did you plant native things? No. So that's the, that's the thing, and it's so, so difficult. Um, I mean, just even thinking about it now, actually, you know, it was so hard in the early days to think that just letting go and letting these animals, that things would come back. Um, but it's one of the kind of bugbears I have about, you know, we, we know we need to get trees back out there in our landscape. But the most natural way to do it is to allow thorny scrub, which we know is one of the best habitats there is, to do the job for us. It's nature's barbed wire. We don't need to be going out with um, a spade and, um, and transporting whips or saplings from a nursery, which may have come from, from Europe, may be bringing in disease, don't have any of the mycorrhizal fungi associates that that tree needs to really be successful, and then put it in a polypropylene tube, attach it to a, a tantalised wooden stake with a plastic tie, and all that carbon energy of getting to the place to do it. We don't need to do any of that. We could just let, and this is what I'm kind of thinking for our our wonderful northern forest, 
we're going to be spending half a billion pounds on that northern forest. We could spend far less and let the thorny scrub do it for us. The jay, the, the jay will plant our oaks. A, jay, or a single jay will plant 4,000 acorns in four weeks. And so we don't need to be going out there planting oaks. The jay will do it for us and it'll plant them next to thorny scrub because it needs the thorny scrub to remember where it's planted it. It needs that, that, that vertical thing that it needs to plant next to. And so we can let the wind, we can let other birds disperse <coughs> all the other seeds and you get a much more interesting mix. And then you can have your free roaming animals in it too. And wouldn't that be more exciting than a, than a single generation closed canopy plantation? That's my bugbear over. Thank you. <laughs> there you have your answer. <laughs> yeah, you talk about uh, rewilding, and your book's called Wilding. And rewilding sounds as if we're going backwards, Was clearly this is about going forwards. Mm. And I just wonder whether you come up against that yeah. a lot, this idea of going back, uh, but actually you're going forward. That's exactly, you've, you put the, you hit the nail on the head, exactly. And that's why, slightly tongue-in-cheek, I called, because I sort of felt, God, we should be brave <coughs> about words and just use them, and, and the definition will come as people understand what it means, as, as what it is. But the, that re, that prefix always indicates, seems to indicate to people that we're going back to some idyllic past with aurochs and tarpan and things. And there's no way we can retrace our footsteps. I mean, we, we have no idea what it was, you know, 300 years ago, let alone 300,000. Um, and in recent times, we've transformed this planet so much that it's, there's no going back. I mean, we've, you know, we've got climate change, we've got pollution, we've got pollutants that will never go away. Um, but we've also affected, you know, species and diversity and the way things react and, and, and move together. We've changed the whole web. So it really is about looking forward and creating novel ecosystems, I think, with the, with the tools we've got left to us. And we know that nature is so creative and clever and has anyway had millions of years of R&D and we've only been at it for you know, tens of thousands. So nature will do extraordinary things given enough, um, enough time and enough space um, so it's that it's really just allowing the time and the space for nature to to do its thing, I think, and, and new new things will evolve. Yeah, yeah. But you're exactly that's absolutely right. It's about looking forward, not back. Yeah, using the using knowledge of the past, but moving knowing that we can only do things for the future. Yeah, yeah. Before mechanised farming, uh, hay meadows were a very important part of our culture. Um, and uh, taking a crop of hay each year was fundamental for feeding um, the animals. Do you, uh, do you pursue that now? Um, I mean, we don't do anything like that because we're basically um, a, a nature um, project. So we're not doing any farming whatsoever. Um, apart from culling the animals, which provides us with meat. But it's, not, it's, it's like a ranching rather than farming. But absolutely, hay meadows, and you know, we look at Romania and the amazing biodiversity they have there because they still have hay meadows. Um, I think what's going to change is you know, that, that can be part of a regenerative farming system. And I think all our, our farming is going to change because we are going to have to stop using chemicals and we are going to have to stop ploughing. 
um, that is coming down the line, and it's coming down the line at us just like um, alternative energy was coming down the line at us 20 years ago, and people thought, God, that's a bit weird, but now we know that that is the future, and the future is regenerative farming, where we're actually going to grow our topsoils and allow pasture for free-roaming animals again, uh, or, or even just for animals, or do mob grazing like Alan Savory, the holistic, holistic management. So absolutely, herb-rich pastures are hugely important of that in that cycle of, in the nutrient cycle, of allowing um, the, the soils to restore again. And we also know that grain-fed animals, the fat that they put down, not only is it, you know, uh, unsustainable because we're feeding, you know, grain to cows, but they're not meant to eat grain. And so they are only, you know, designed to, 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 to browse, as, you know, we've seen, and, and to eat grass and herbs and all that kind of thing. And the fats that grain-fed cows put down is positively bad for us. There have been endless studies in the States and here, independent studies done on that. But when you, when you eat fat from animals that are fed purely on pasture, so not grass-fed because that can only, they, they need it, that, that by definition, they could just be grass-fed for half of their life, but actually pasture-fed, which means only ever fed pasture, which is out in, in the field or in, in hay, the fats that they put down are high in um, conjugated linoleic acid, which is the, 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 most, the, the most powerful anti-carcinogen in nature, and in omega-3 and 6. And omega-3 particularly is very, very difficult to find in other foodstuffs, and we have to eat it ourselves as humans to get it. So um, it's difficult because the, the, food, the, far, the food lobby wants, us, wants to maintain the status quo, and recognising that that grain-fed fats are bad for us is really, really going to be difficult to get across, um, to break down those 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 sort of big food food interests. But um, I definitely see a future for the wonderful, wonderful herb and flower-rich hay meadows. Thank you. Um, I just had a quick question about um, biosecurity. Obviously, it's a big buzzword at the moment, particularly in the horticultural industry. Um, would you say that your uh, biodiversity effectively helps. I'm thinking of something like processionary oak moth or th these things that these invasive species that are coming across. If you ended up with that, for example, do, firstly, do you think you would get anything like that because it would be naturally managed, if you like, or if you did, how would you tackle that? I have no idea, and I mean, there's there's not enough research done no. on this kind of thing at all. I mean, we have ash dieback at the moment, yeah. and um, you know, and it's desperately sad seeing you know ash disappearing, um, dying on us. Um, but I mean, the wonderful thing about rewilding, though, is it does it does turn one into a sort of eternal optimist because there's always a silver lining, <laughs> and there always is a silver lining, lining with nature, as long as we don't start cutting down every dead ash in the landscape like we did with elm. Um, that for 20, 30, 40 years, we'll provide a habitat. We haven't got, um, because we got rid of all our hol hollow trees, we've, we've cut them down. There's no habitat for barn owls and there's no habitat for bees, for wild bees. That's why we have to put up, you know, these bee nesting hives, if you want wild bees, and why we put up um, owl boxes, because we just don't have enough dead wood in the landscape. So dead wood can provide a fantastic habitat. But about your biosecurity, you know, um, question, 
I, I don't know enough about it, to be honest, but I can't, I can't help but believe that um, naturally grown trees where they have their, you know, if they're grown in, as I was talking about, the, in, in, in an environment with thorny scrub around them, will naturally plug into the mycorrhizal networks beneath them. And they must have better, a better immune system mm, healthier. than healthier than if they were transplanted and planted, you know, into a kind of cleared area. Um, I, th I know that the Forestry Commission are looking deeply into this because they know that now the vulner vulnerability of having a single species plantation. Mm. And so they're beginning to look at, at planting for the future with, with multi-species and, and also not cropping all at once. So going in like the Bavarians do and selectively cropping. So you have different age groups so that you're less vulnerable to that wipeout you know, scenario. Mm. So it's 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 scary times, I think. But you know, the 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 more um, the more biodiverse your system is, the more complete your ecosystem is, the more dynamic it is. I think the better it's going to be able to respond. And that's all I yeah. I could suggest, really. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think we've got time for one more question. Yeah, quick question here, if I may. How much did subsidies? Uh, affect the project or how much did you benefit from subsidies? Yeah, um, it affected the project hugely to begin with because that's how we were able to make the switch. Um, I don't know, are you a farmer? Um, or but Try to. <laughs> um, well, there, there was a moment, it's a bit boring, but there was a moment where the, the, the basic farm payment, there was a thing called decoupling, where for the first time, instead of being paid to, 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 to um, grow a certain crop, you were paid a, a farm a payment based on your previous year's subsidy, where you were then allowed to do anything with your land as, lo as long as you kept it in reasonable sort of nick so that it could be turned back into agriculture if need be. So we were able to take advantage of that and still get basic farm payment, which is, by the way, I think it's an iniquitous payment because you know, you're, you're now just being paid for owning land, which is just, to me, completely not right. But we know that that's going to go if we leave Europe, it will go um, by, I think it's by 2030. So we won't get that anymore, but I, I can't remember what, what, what that is, but it's maybe it's about 120,000 or something. And then we got, eventually we got higher level stewardship. So that's an agri-environment subsidy from Europe, uh, which is to the tune of about 200,000, I think. And we still get that. Um, Post-Brexit, I think that's going to change. We know high-level stewardship, we won't be in Europe and we won't get it anymore. But I think um, the, in the agricultural bill, they're talking about ELMS, which is Environmental Land Management Scheme. And so for the first time, and this is unbelievably exciting, um, land managers will be paid not purely for producing food, irrespective of how they do it or how polluting it is or on what land it is, but they will be paid also for you'll be able to subscribe to for payments for um, your um, uh, water purity, for restoring your soils, for carbon sequestration, for flood mitigation, for all those things that I was talking about earlier. And that will change the mindset of farming completely um, and change our landscape, I think, for the better. So in the early days, those were hugely important for us um, to enable us to do what we do now. But we still feel very nervous about being reliant on subsidies. And now, thanks to the, um, because, you know, it's at the whim of a politician, you know, could, everything could change. So 
at the moment with our with our meat it revenues, which we hope to triple in the next few years when we start selling direct to the public under our own brand and start producing charcuterie and you know wonderful things like beef broth and lard and dripping old-fashioned things again. Um, we hope to triple that, and then we have about an income uh, of about three. Well, we of about three hundred twenty thousand from our ecotourism business now, and we make a margin of about twenty percent on that. Um, which you know, margin of twenty percent, you know, for farming. I mean, you know, I mean, so for us, that's amazing. Um, and then we have all those farm buildings that previously just used to cost us to keep the roof on. You know, they weren't bringing in any income, but we had to have them there for the farming enterprise. Um, now we're slowly converting them, albeit with capital outlay, but we've converted about half of them, I think, now, into light store, a light industrial use storage space, office space. There's a lot of call for that where we are. People not wanting to sit in a traffic jam to get to Horsham. They want to just go straight to their office in a lovely building looking out onto green scenery. So that, that, that again, is a huge income stream for us, and it will get bigger when we, as, we, as we finish off renovating the other buildings. But what's interesting, even though those buildings are rented by other companies, um, they employ 200 people. So that's 200 jobs back into the rural economy. And that's the same amount of jobs that were on NEP in 1750. So we, you know, we, we feel that in a few years' time we will be self-sustaining without subsidies, um, but also hopefully that we're showing other estates or farms that there are really valuable income streams to be had from doing something like this. When you mentioned re rewilding is largely just letting the land do what it wants to do, um, how long was it before you introduced um, herbivores, or did you introduce herbivores from the start? Well, it, we're, we, we're, the, the estate is separated by roads. Originally, in our kind of you know naive, fanciful plan, we, we sent to the government where we wanted bison, beaver, and wild boar, as well as everything else, and dead carcasses rotting everywhere. Um, and we also wanted land bridges over the roads so that they could have free movement between the three areas. But what we have around the, um, the house is a Repton Park, and that's what we got funding for, first of all. So we sort of did it in stages, actually. Um, and we got countryside stewardship funding to, to restore the park, which meant just stopping ploughing in the park and reseeding with, with wildflowers, native wildflowers, which we wouldn't do now because they come back anyway. Um, but um, that has... And then we put animals straight into the park. First of all, it was deer, and then we put in... Um, horses and um, and cattle and all of that so it's it looks like still much very much like a park it's organic so that we know the soil is good and we know we've got exciting things like like ravens and peregrine falcons and lesser spotted tree um, um, less spotted woodpeckers and things but it doesn't look wild and woolly it looks very you know um, grazed some would say overgrazed but it is it is heavily grazed in the southern bit we couldn't get funding at all to do anything with that so we couldn't get the the ring fence around that area and just ironically that is where that is the, almost the most exciting bit because we just didn't know what to do with it and we didn't have the money to to sow it with seed and so we just left it after the arable fields <coughs> had had their last harvest and that's when you got this great explosion of of um of thorny scrub and it was only seven or eight years into that that we then finally attracted hls funding and got the ring fence around it and that was perfect, actually, as it turned out, because then the scrub was robust enough to resist some of the browsing. It, the, the thorns, 
the, the, scrub, uh, the scrubby trees could, could produce thorns and tannins to resist the browsing. And you had a much more even battle between vegetation succession and animal disturbance. And that's where the kind of dynamism happens. That's where the sparks begin to fly and all that sort of messy margin stuff starts happening. So I think if we were to advise other people on how to do it, if you're brave enough and you want to have something happening quickly, that's the way to do it. Allow the vegetation pulse and then put the animals in after six or seven years. And if you're not brave enough, then allow, you know, just, um, just put, say, cattle into an area and then and then you'll see a much slower transition to something more exciting. So if you're worried about what the neighbours think, there are these degrees of how quickly you can do it. Um, Lucy, does that where we are? I think we'll practically run out of time. But Absolutely, I and I guess if you want to know more, there's a book that you can buy. <laughs> yes. I just want to give Thank the very last question just very quickly to um, Jamie Cooper, who's the Countryside Coordinator at Heckfield. Um, Hetfield is um, visionary enough to have, have someone no, in that amazing. role. And amazing. he's not here tonight because he's looking after his six-month-old baby. Um, but I did promise him I'd ask his question, of which, what do you think Netball look like in 20 years' time? Just briefly. Well, we are applying for a licence to release beavers. So if we get that, it'll look dramatically different. It'll look amazing. Um, we are also talking now to our neighbours, um, landowners who are coming round to the idea, um, particularly post-Brexit, I think. And what we'd love is to, we have this vision of connecting NEP with the sea. So um, it's only about 14 miles as the turtle amazing. dove flies to the sea. Um, but it would just be amazing if we could persuade other landowners to join in this project. And um, we could have our cattle sort of browsing on sallow one week at NEP and then grazing on seaweed on shore and beach the next. Incredible. Well, I think all of us here tonight will um, join me in thanking you so much. And I think all of us now understand so much more about what you've been doing and that this is a real landmark in the history of um, the British countryside and an incredible endeavour. And thank you so much. Yeah, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. <laughs>